Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 113 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we talked about LinkedIn and the new second edition of LinkedIn in One Hour for Lawyers, the book Allison Shields and I wrote. A few episodes ago, I said something to the effect that although there's a lot of talk out there about big data, even big data and its impact on law firms, it didn't seem to me to be a ripe topic at this point for this podcast. Of course, by saying that, that got me thinking about the topic, and the result is this will kind of, but not exactly, be the big data topic I thought it was too early to do. You never know, do you? Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? (laughs) Well, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we're going to discuss big data in law firms, but not exactly. It's more like a, I guess, combination of not-so-big data and money ball with a legal twist. In our second segment, we'll talk about taking a step back or a break from technology. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip website or observation that you can start using the second this podcast is over. But first, let's get started on our main topic, and that's uh, data analytics and I guess what Dennis is calling money law, and more specifically, how the idea of big data, and you've heard it a lot, you may have heard it a lot, if you haven't, we're going to talk about it a little bit more, has inspired you to look at the idea of other types of data in law firms worth using. Maybe it's because we had to record several episodes this week in advance of my upcoming travel, lots of travel I'm getting ready to do, but I have let Dennis talk me into going out on the edge with this topic, perhaps against my better judgment. And I'm not really sure where this one is going to go. I'm not really sure I'm going to have anything intelligent to say about this. But but Dennis, you said that the idea of big data itself gave you the idea for this topic. Why don't you start by giving us a little bit of background on big data? Well, big data is kind of the rage in terms of what's going on in technologies today, especially at the sort of enterprise level. And I'm reading a book called Big Data by Victor Meyer Schoenberger and Kenneth Kukier. And it's a great book and a great introduction to the topic that I recommend. It's kind of written in a popular way to talk about this. And the idea is there are these huge data sets these days. And so we used to think in terms of these big databases that we'd handle on a computer or maybe even a a couple of computers. Now we just have massive sets of data and we're going to see even more of that. So whether it's scientific data, so everything from the, all the data from the Hadron Collider, those sorts of things where it takes more than one computer and it may take a whole network or the calculations may be distributed computers around the world to deal with these huge data sets and it moves away from the notion of saying we have a data set that we can that's a sample of things you know so we're used to the idea that you know at election time if people have you know they've polled a certain number of people whatever it is 700 1200 the magic number is that they pretty much can give you the percentage of the vote we've gone away from the science scientific sample to say, we have data sets where you can have all of the data and then start to work with that. And so that's really caused some interesting things to happen. The classic example of that uh, happened 
2009 when we had the flu outbreak and the CDC was able to kind of figure out where the flu had broken out with about a two-week lag. And what they really wanted was real time so they would know when when a flu outbreak was going to happen. Well, Well, Google worked on that and they experimented with different algorithms. My understanding is millions of different approaches to this. And they found that using a set of 45 search terms, they could basically, in real time, learn where the flu was having an outbreak in real time, two weeks ahead of what the CDC said. And and there's this great correlation to that. And that's sort of the important thing about big data is that you're talking about the massive data sets where what becomes more important is, you know, as the authors of the big data book say, the what rather than the why. So correlation, which says, hey, If we look at these 45 terms, that tells us where we're going to find flu is more important than why those 45 terms tell you that. And it's also talking about huge, just huge, huge data sets. So that's the notion of big data. And I recommend this book is a good overview. And I also recommend there are some uh, podcasts where the authors are interviewed where they do a nice job of explaining the ideas. So that got me thinking about data sets in law firms, uh, which is you know not even close to big data. But what might be a big enough set of data that would give you information that you could look at in different ways and analyze in different ways? And so the idea I had is a data set that all firms have. And that's the timesheet data. Firms have timesheet data, maybe going back, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years, that all they do is they use it for billing and they might use it for reviews in compensation, but in the simplest and most unsophisticated ways. So the idea for this podcast is what might law firms do with that type of set of data and ways that they might analyze it? I don't know, Tom, how's that for an introduction? That's a good introduction, and it kind of leaves me still asking questions about where we head with this, but I, I will say that we're going to come back to the billing part, but I want to still look at big data from a larger perspective, and I think that as you and I have been talking to a certain extent in the field I work with, e-discovery and records management, there are tools that are designed to point to large data sets, whether we call that big data or not is, I guess, up for discussion, but there are many tools that are very similar similar to the tools that are used to analyze and do the types of things with big data that you've been talking about. And primarily, that's predictive coding with electronic discovery. To a certain extent, they're taking those tools and also creating auto classification tools for the information governance function of a corporation. And we're seeing that happen a lot more on that end. But, you know, in terms of big data, what interests me the most, I get intrigued by the story of Google and Google being able to determine and figure out trends just by analyzing large amounts of data. It's already happening to a certain extent in the legal community. There are companies out there, Lex Machina is one of them, Legal Metric is another one. They are taking information, primarily court data. They're taking stuff from the, the particular courts, individual cases, docket sheets, court information. They are providing that data to give people the ability to understand who are the right lawyers to hire for cases, how to make the right decisions that companies can make in IP cases. 
tools that'll predict whether or not your case is going to settle for how much. And actually, I think from what I read anyway, they're amazingly accurate because they're just using tons and tons of this data for analysis. Uh, some of the other litigation tools will let you learn how often the judge in your court's going to rule in your favor, what motions are denied or granted, how long cases typically run. And these kinds of tools can be tremendously useful to making evaluations about what you want to do in your case. Because part of the challenge of being a lawyer is understanding um, what's going to happen in a particular piece of litigation and making guesses and using your experience and thinking about your intuition uh, has been really a part of being a good lawyer. But these tools are taking those decisions out of the lawyer's hands now and will allow, in effect, I think, the lawyer to help the client make good, smart decisions early on, which could wind up saving the client lots of money um, in terms of not pursuing cases they need to pursue. Also winds up, I think, helping the lawyer make some decisions about uh, how to give advice to the client as well. So uh, in terms of the legal field, we're already seeing these tools come out. And I, I guess I'll turn it back now to your comparison or want to use a law firm billing records in new and unique ways. So why don't you get started and talk about what is your thought about how to use this and how do you think it would help law firms and lawyers? Well, my colleague Greg Upchurch was early on involved in some of the stuff you were describing where he said, well, you have all this court information that's a public record. What if you capture that, look at that data, and then you know, try to determine some things about it. And what you realize, and this will work back to the timesheet data, is that lawyers have intuition, as you say. You know, this judge seems more favorable to plaintiffs. This judge takes a long time to make a decision. You know, don't file a case in this court in August because everybody's on vacation, those sorts of things. And, and people have a sense of that. And Greg and the group of people he's working with were able to start to, you know, look at that data and pull things together. And sometimes it validated what people's intuition was, and other times it was the opposite. But you start to have evidence, you know, sort of evidence base for this to say, if you want things done faster, this judge tends to decide on these types of motions in, say, 30 days as opposed to 90 days. And that could have a big impact on the way you tried the case and the, the sorts of selections that you made. So, that was the use of saying, here's this publicly available data that we can start to analyze in different ways. And so that leads to, to my notion to say, well, what if we start to analyze the data we have inside the firm? And so my example here is John Albert and the Brian Cave Law Firm, which is headquartered in St. Louis. And they did a lot of work you know, looking at their financial numbers and, you know, billing, timekeeping records. And part of the notion was how can we be more profitable and what can we do that makes the firm more profit? And they, they came up with some metrics to, to measure profit, but then they started to do things to say, we always have, and this is a classic example, somebody comes in and says, we have the chance to do work for this potentially great client, you know, a big name client. We can do some work, but they have this kind of, you know, not very good work, but it's a way for us to get our foot in the door and we might not make any money on it, but it potentially leads to more work. And so anybody who's been in a law firm know that's a common conversation. And sometimes it works out and a lot of times it doesn't. But in Brian Cave's case, they started to look at the things and they say, well, if we're going to do these things, is there a way to to do it in a profitable way? And what they found was that surprisingly, in a lot of cases, by 
configuring the way that work was staffed, pushing it down to associates, paralegals, limiting the amount of time the higher billing partners worked on it. And if people followed that, they could do this work that's sort of the traditional loss leader work and actually do it in a profitable way. And so even if it didn't lead to more work from that client, it was at least profitable going in. So that to me was a great example of saying, let's do some simple metrics and let's analyze the data we have. And maybe we can do that so we, you know, configure staffing in a different way and we make uh, the representation that we do profitable. So that's the example. And then I started to say, well, what are other ways that lawyers in law firm might use that timesheet analytics? Because I guess there could be years of this stuff. And I don't know, I'll let you react to some of this stuff, Tom, but I was thinking the staffing that we talked about, identifying places where you could improve process because things seemed to be taking too long or things were inefficient, uh, determining commodity areas uh, versus where you might want to do custom work, places where technology might make more or less sense, which practice areas were profitable and how you might make changes in that to analyze you know whether you know people who did the same task you know did them more efficiently or less efficiently and whether that should have an impact on compensation though all those sorts of things i think make sense as you start to analyze that data that you have that all you're doing now is just saying how many billable hours can i pull out of there Oh, I think that's right. I was starting to think of all the crazy things you could do with it. But if I knew when all of my folks were billing their time, I could then affect my heating and air conditioning bills by making sure that it was turned on the right time or and turned off when nobody's around, when nobody's billing. There's unlimited numbers of things I think that you can do by looking at that data. But one of the things that is, I guess, a little bit scary about that, and you and I were talking about this before we recorded, is the fact that being able to spot patterns in billing is going to allow theoretically anyway, it would allow the partners, the people in charge, the decision makers to make predictions about the profitability of any one attorney or paralegal, I suppose, or anyone who's doing billing in the firm and make some sorts of decisions about the ongoing viability of employment of that person. Is that person going to be, you know, will that person be profitable enough to be a partner? Is this person pretty much living up to the reputation that they have in their work and that they're only going to be an associate or they will be low level their entire career? And I guess that that's sort of a, to me, sort of a scary element to it is that lawyers will start looking at this and begin to draw conclusions from it in terms terms of how profitable they can be and that they are only going to uh, to make sure that they are hiring individuals who hit certain profitability levels that they can tell from mining that data. So I, I think it's interesting. I think that this type of thing has the potential to reduce the cost of retaining an associate. Instead of waiting to see if the associate's going to turn out to be profitable for us, let's apply the first couple of years billing to our data and see what the numbers say. I think an intriguing prospect to add along to the things that you think that people can use the billing data for, I think it all makes sense. And we'll be interested to see if firms start to do more of that in the coming years. Well, and also, I think you can look at things where you say, if it's taking, you know, associate A, X amount of time on average to do a certain type of task and it's taking an associate B five times as long. Is that uh, a competence issue? Is that yep. a training issue? Does that say that, you know, associate A is more partner material? You could also start to say when we look at 
the performance of associates in the two years before they became partner, the ones who became partner, are there patterns that we can look for in the future that may indicate somebody who's likely to become a partner? Some of this is just, you know, an extension of things that people talk about doing but never quite get around to doing, but the data is certainly there. If you said, if we start to analyze who's successful, what lawyers are successful in however we choose to define it in our firm, you know, what their background is, what traits there are, what their resume has looked like coming out of law school, could we then start to look for the same types of people or the same indicators of success, you know, as we go through the hiring process. I think you could also kind of look at things and say, you know, a lot of people have this intuition that you might have, I'm just going to say it's a managing partner, but if, if managing partner gets involved in a project, it seems like it takes forever and it doesn't, you know, everything gets out of whack and it doesn't quite work. Well, if you sort of said, hey, let's look at all the types of matters of this type where this managing partner gets involved and the ones where he doesn't. And you say, wow, look at this. The time goes up. You know, we have to write off more time. It really seems like there's this imbalance. And if we can then say, hey, we see this thing. If, If we keep this guy involved for, you know, less than two hours, things go really well. Then maybe that's something you, like I said, may prove out the intuition that people have. But it you know, allows you to potentially to find some interesting trends. Then I also think, Tom, as we kind of wind this up, I'm saying I also think that this also potentially points to ways that we can say, here's some things that are sort of commodity stuff that we thought was good work for us, but it's really not all that profitable. So maybe what we do is instead of you know, do this type of work, we, you know, do some kind of self-service thing or turn it into information or we just train our clients on these things. And then maybe we also identify, wow, look, we don't do a lot of things in this area, but when we do them, they turn out really well and they're profitable and people are happy with them and the clients are with them. And maybe we use that data to identify some of those things. So I think there's some great possibilities. And I know the way you think, Tom. So what you're going to say is, yeah, that's great. Who's actually going to do that analysis? And that probably is a core part of this issue. Yeah, so I won't say it, but you're right. That's one of the key things. But I guess for me, the way that I'll leave this topic, and then Dennis, you can take us out on the segment if you want, is that if we're talking about commoditizing or we're looking at this data and determining that there are services we provide that we can commoditize uh, along those same lines, what's interesting to me is whether or not big data has the capability to commoditize a lawyer's instinct and experience. If a client can say, you know, I'm not going to rely on their experience to tell me what to do and their advice. I've got big data that's going to tell me that 90% chance that I'm going to get my motion for summary judgment granted. That's enough for me. I'm going to go and do that. Is that what's going to happen in the future for lawyers? Are we going to see that the clients would prefer to pay a a company to analyze and crunch the numbers for them rather than ask the lawyer? I I think that's a little far-fetched, but uh, I'm wearing the tinfoil hat on this particular conversation, but interested to see what use gets made of this big data as time goes on. Dennis, closing thoughts for us? Yeah. So I I think that we'll see more of this data and the use of it. I mean, it's out there. You just think about it. And then you can say, if I just have the timesheet data and I'm at a firm and there are many big firms who say, I also have the swipe card data. 
that's sitting around. And can I put those two things together? And will that tell me something? And maybe I have some other data as well. Will that tell me some other things? So because the data is out there and we see how people are using it, and we also see in other professions, consulting and other things, people saying, we can take the data and the things we've done and we can turn it into software products or services or you know information products. That's going to be proved to be, I think, competition for lawyers. There's definitely some big issues out there as to who does it. I had a couple ideas on this because I think that as this stuff gets bigger, it becomes harder to do. And it is really hard for me to say, oh, we're going to have uh, you know, some who creates algorithms on our staff at our law firm or you know an analyst of big data at our firm but there are new businesses springing up all the time that are database as a service data analytics statistics as a service those sorts of things where you could say oh, I could take the data and obviously there's complexity to these issues that I'm going to gloss over but give that data to somebody to analyze for you and then I thought what might be interesting is, you know, again, assuming you can do this sanitization that makes you comfortable and such to say, what if I gave 10 years worth of timesheet data to a local university and gave it to them to say, do what you will as part of your data analytics program, just kind of let us know what you find. And then you're helping out the community. You may be getting insights yourself and you're not ramping up and hiring those people. So I just think it's kind of a cool place to be. Like, as I said before the program, Tom, I don't really have any answers. It's sort of an idea, but it just seems like an interesting place. And, And when I thought of big data and whether it actually applies, to law firms, I'd certainly going to apply to the profession. I mean, there's an academic paper out there called Lawyering the Shadow of Data by Drury Stevenson and Nicholas Wagner that kind of points to a lot of the issues in the legal area. But I think even in a smaller basis, just in terms of the business of law and running a practice and deciding what's profitable, what's not, is basic questions that the data can actually paint a picture that would be useful to probably more lawyers than we might expect. Yep, I I do agree that it will be interesting to see where it heads because I think that we're going to get into many of the areas that you've discussed today so far. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. We talked in the last episode about security precautions Tom might be taking or might think about taking for an upcoming trip to China. It got me thinking, because some of the approaches were pretty drastic, it got me thinking about actually being away from your normal technology or even taking a sabbatical from technology for a period of time. 
Now, there's actually a mini genre of uh, articles by journalists, especially tech journalists, who take a month or so away off from technology and then write an article about the great revelations they have learned that never really surprised me and, frankly, never seemed to be that interesting. You know, like, oh, you need to talk to people more and, you know, appreciate nature and, and things like that, which they probably could have blogged about rather than taking an, an evening, rather than taking a month away from technology. But I thought it might be interesting, irregardless, to say, are we actually a little over-technologized? And what what would happen if we backed away from technology for a while? You know, whether Tom traveling or we just decide to say, I'm just taking a week or two away from technology. What would it look like? Tom, I know your power went off a couple of times when we recorded the last podcast. What do you think you might learn if you went for a while without technology? Well, I guess, first of all, I reject the premise. I reject the premise that unless you plan to take a sabbatical from work, you can't take a sabbatical from technology, at least if you're a lawyer or if you're in a related field. If you are a sheep herder or something that doesn't rely as much on technology, I think it's very difficult to go without technology and be productive for your company for whoever it is that you work for, unless you work for yourself, I think it's very hard to be successful in your business without going uh, and relying upon technology. So I think the first thing that I might learn is that I can't work without technology. I'd like to say that I would learn that I could get along with technology perfectly well, like some of these journalists talk about, but I have to be honest, and I guess this is going to take the nature of a confessional, I don't think that would be the case for me. I will admit that technology is a huge crime in my life. I am curious by nature and having technology that helps me find out information and learn things, I think is good for me. It's good for the people that I'm around. I like to think anyway. I also think that technology helps me be a lot more efficient in what I do every day. I get things done faster. I get things done in a way that's more orderly and more organized. So, so you say, well, you didn't always have this technology to help you out and you got along just fine and, and that's true. So plop me back in the 1980s and I think I'll just be fine in my ignorance of what's to come. But uh, take away my technology now and I, the feeling that I have, I think, will be quite different. The absence of that technology, I think, will be a very different feeling from never having had it in the first place. And it would cause me to have a lot more negative feelings toward it. I remember seeing a greeting card recently that I, I think I actually bought one to give to my father at at some point in time, and it has the caption at the top. It says, in the days before Google. And there's two people sitting on a sofa, and they're watching television, and one says gee, I wish I knew what other movies this actress was in so I could watch them. And the other person says, oh well, too bad for you. Having had the access now through technology, I don't want to be that other person anymore. I don't want to be the person who says, oh, well, I want to have access to things so I can learn about it, so I can be more efficient. So I guess my roundabout way of answering your question is, when you say, what would you learn if you went without technology for a while? I guess I would say nothing. I just wouldn't learn anything by it. I have now, I think, confessed my complete and utter addiction to independence upon technology. I've laid myself bare. So Dennis, what about you? I think you've just simply confessed you would never participate in that experiment. Um, Correct. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I you know, I look around lately and just finished a couple projects, and 
you know, th- thinking about getting a new iPhone and need to upgrade operating systems and stuff. And I go, man, I have a lot of stuff coming in, a lot of stuff going on. And it's just a big, you know, my technology to-do list is pretty big. So there's a part of me that would say, oh, I'd like to step back a little bit. But it's not really step away. It's, it's more step back and say, I'd like to slim down, maybe be a little more focused in what I do. What, what troubles me when I read the articles about the people who step away from technology is that I think they underestimate how essential technology, especially the internet, is to our social interaction these days. And so I would say, well, if I'm without technology, then I'm not in touch with Tom on a regular basis. I'm not, you know, there's a bunch of people who I'm close to that I keep in touch with through the internet. And that's a big component of what I do. There's information that I rely on. You know, your example with the TV one is a classic because somebody was complaining to me the other day how, you know, the iPhone is this great argument enders you know so like you're watching (laughs) you're watching some sporting event or tv show and somebody says oh i think it was this and somebody says no i think it was that and somebody looks up on the iphone they go you know it's all over so they're like the discussion ends there and i'm like well it's not even a discussion i mean like what are you talking about how can you say it's better that like a group of people who could find the answer to something and discuss like the implications of it or something actually have a conversation go back and forth you know for a whole night maybe even people get angry at each other for something that people just don't remember and they could they could look up. So I, I think that it's always important to think of the place of technology. And, you know, I always go back to this uh, great Kevin Kelly essay about, you know, how the Amish choose to use technology that... I think it's great to say you really need to think through how it is that you want to use technology and the effect of it. But I sort of think that the idea that you can or that you should just step away completely, it seems like a bit of a, you know, as I would say in the old days, a a bit of a parlor trick and a a way to say, I ran out of ideas to write about, so I'm going to step away from technology and come to this revelation that, yes, you know, being a, a human, you know, interacting with nature and my neighbors is better than anything that technology could bring me. And I think that's kind of a short sighted approach. So it sounds like you're not going to do the test either. Well, you're right, Tom. I, I might if I had a couple months off and could go back to our family farm in Indiana or just somebody wanted to set me up in Maui or whatever ah. you know, for a couple months. I, I would consider mm. you know, dropping off the grid a little bit. A better man. A better man than me. <laughs> Well, now it's time for a parting shots at one tip website or observation. You can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. Well, I want to point people to some great continuing legal education programs from the newly named ABA Law Practice Division. It's no longer the Law Practice Management section. It is now the Law Practice Division. And if you go to lawpractice.org and click on events and CLE, you will notice down at the bottom a section called CLE on the go, which gives you links to about 20 to 30 different sessions and CLE programs on technology, on other law practice management topics. It's just tremendous content that's out there. So if you find yourself in need of some CLE and some credit, there are some here that will get you, uh, I think, ethics credit as well. Check it out. Just go to lawpractice.org, click on events and CLE, and scroll down to the bottom of the page. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to struggle with the whole not calling it LPM. It's tough. Uh, but it's I tough. guess I'll get, I'll get used to it over time. So I'm thinking with my parting shots, I always like to give a podcast episode 
I was thinking about that today because as I was researching this big data topic and I, I was reading the big data book uh, by Victor Meyer Schoenberger and Kenneth Kukier, that I knew I couldn't finish the book before the podcast, but I just went onto iTunes and searched for the author's name and I found a couple great interviews and a presentation they did. And so if you're interested in the topic, I recommend just going to iTunes and if you find their presentation that's on the Commonwealth Club radio program podcast, totally worth your time to learn some of the ideas, although it will tell you where I got some of the examples and made some of the points that I made. But it's a great approach. But the one I really want to recommend is Harvard Business Review podcast. Clayton Christensen, who people know that I really like because of the jobs to be done framework and his work on innovation and disruption, has a podcast with him and Dominic Barton of McKinsey. And it's about the disruption of the consulting business with McKinsey being the prime example of big consulting. So you can look for it by their names, Clayton Christensen and Dominic Barton on Consulting's Disruption is the title. Um, you can find it either on the hbr.org page in their blogs, or you can find this in iTunes, which I think is the better way to get it. And it's great because it goes through the whole notion of disruptive innovation and where McKinsey sits and how disruption is likely to occur as McKinsey focuses on bigger and more profitable business and turns away from what they see as smaller, less profitable business. And the firms that come into that area are the people who are going to be the disruptors. And the tension that McKinsey has in going where it needs to go versus the likelihood that that's going to lead to disruption of what they do and an impact on it. It's a great podcast. It absolutely has implications for law firms and the legal profession. So I recommend listening to it. And as I listened to it, I had this idea that is just like, you know, not even half an idea. It's not even a fourth of an idea. But Potentially, I think that when we look back over time, this sort of lost generation of law students over the last few years where, you know, the job market has been so bad, I have the sense that if we look back, say, of the lawyers who came out of law school between 2007 and maybe 2017, if we go out another 20 years and we look back, I think that what happened then, I would be willing to bet that what happened then and what they do as a result of what they found is going to be seen as it created a dramatic change in the way that law is practiced. So anyway, that's my prediction. Gee, um, this has been the podcast for heavy topics. Uh, so the next five podcasts will be about uh, Twitter and Facebook and light and fluffy. So anyway, I'm just kidding. Uh, that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our show notes blog at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast uh, in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site. And if you have questions or suggestions for upcoming episode topics, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet at tkmreport. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by rating or reviewing the podcast on iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 
Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.